I'm Tom Patterson. I'm filling in for Alex Jones today, and uh, I'm just delighted uh, that we have uh, both Clay Shirky and, and Walter Robinson here. Uh, I'm going to keep the introduction short uh, so that we have as much time for questions. I know that uh, this is an issue you all want to talk about, but uh, Walter Robinson and his Spotlight team uh, won the Pulitzer Prize in, uh, in the public service area in 2003 for the uh, for their series of stories on uh, sexual abuse uh, in the Catholic Church on the part of the, the clergy. Uh, and uh, that was near a, the end of a 30-year career with, uh, with the Globe. Um, and uh, Robbie is now distinguished professor of journalism at, uh, at Northeastern. Um, and then uh, Clay Shirky. Uh, I mentioned this morning when they were in Alex Jones's class this morning that, uh, Clay's been writing about the internet for about 15 years, which is about as long as anybody's been writing about the internet. So, uh, talk about getting in early uh, on the ground on this important new medium. Uh, also, in his career, uh, time in business and in the theater, uh, he is a consultant, also has a faculty position at NYU, um, and we're trying to get him up here, and I think we will uh, to do a course this fall. So. Um, and uh, I guess we'll start with you, Robbie. Thank you. I think this morning, you, when you introduced Clay, you said he was one of the first to recognize the potential for the internet. And you kindly didn't say I was among the last. <laughs> um, old media, new media. Um, I'm, uh, as uh, we discussed this morning, I'm a, I'm a bit of a relic. Uh, uh, and I've had the great good fortune to have uh, done the kind of reporting I do and what uh, I now look back back on fondly as uh, perhaps what was the golden age of American newspaper investigative journalism. Uh, the opportunities to do that in the newspaper world have obviously evaporated, quite evaporated, but they've diminished quite a bit. I think that's sad, and I hope there's a future for it, and uh, uh, something I hope we can talk about today. I want to uh, I want to talk a little bit um, about the the what we did in in um, 2001, 2002, and uh, 2003 on the Catholic Church, and uh, I'll I'll leave to Clay the discussion of uh, pretty much the discussion of impact the internet has had on the story. What, one of the things that surprises me, frankly, is that it's taken so long uh, for what happened so publicly to the American Catholic Church to begin to happen uh, to the Catholic Church in, in Europe with all the implications it has for the current hope and his administration of the Munich Archdiocese, uh, etc. But I have to say, uh, in, in 2001, when we had a new editor walk in the door at the Globe uh, from the Miami Herald, Marty Barron, and in Florida, virtually everything is public, and uh, back at that time, uh, there was a court fight <coughs> over whether the <coughs> autopsy photos of uh, Dale Earnhardt would be public. Fortunately, in the end, they were not. But Marty Barron walked in the Globe and had read the day before his arrival, a column by Eileen McNamara, in which she took note of, 
civil lawsuit against a Boston priest, John Gagan, involving 80-some victims, and uh, that the judge in the case had ordered a put a confidentiality uh, order on all the documents. They were not public. And uh, Marty's first inclination, this is the best example I can think of in my years of journalism, of bringing fresh eye to an old subject, was why, well, why should these documents not be public? And by that afternoon of his first day, uh, he had called our law firm, Bingham, Bingham, I used to call him Bingham, Bangham, Billum, <laughs> Bingham McCutcheon now, and, and asked them to look into going to court and filing a motion to get these documents freed up. And he had pulled me into his office. I was the assistant managing editor for investigations and head of the Spotlight team, which was a four-person team of which I was essentially the player coach, and asked us to look into, uh, to begin to look into Father Gagan. And I think I walked out trembling, thinking, you know, the Boston Globe taking on the Catholic Church. I mean, this, given the array of people that we had had in our sights over the years, this was pretty extraordinary. Um, and, and at that time, I did not know, because none of us knew what happened elsewhere in the world, really, in many ways. I did not know that there had been an extraordinary case in Louisiana in 1985 of a priest who had abused uh, <coughs> well over 100 children. I didn't know that there had been a case in, um, <coughs> in the late 80s in Dallas. Uh, I didn't know about a case in New Mexico. What I only knew about, really, and our librarian was able to find this after some, what I did know about was a case in 1992 in another diocese in Massachusetts involving a priest named James Porter, who was a pedophile who had abused over 100 children. But we, we started from scratch, and with a new editor asking us to do it out of fright. And we, we, worked, we went out, four of us, knowing nothing about the subject, and decided to basically comb the landscape and try and find anybody who knew anything about sexual abuse of children who might know something about this priest. And after a couple of weeks we went back to the editor, I went back to the editor, and I said to him, we haven't found much out about Gagan, but we have been told that he is the tip of the iceberg and that there are many other priests who have done the same thing, and it's just never come out. And I was thinking at the time maybe 10, 15 priests. That would be a really big story. And uh, the week, uh, the Friday before 9-11, uh, I met with two people who gave me the names of 30 priests for whom the Archdiocese had made secret settlements in the prior decades. And uh, we had to take a break like everybody else in our business for five weeks to do reporting on 9-11, uh, but when we get back to it, um, we developed a database of every priest who had been placed on sick leave at a fairly young age by the Boston Archdiocese and came up with a list of over 100 priests who had been put in that category in the prior decade. Um, we, uh, our lawyer had filed a lawsuit seeking all the documents in the Gagan case, and in November uh, of 2001, a Superior Court judge who something not incidentally has spent 16 years in Catholic schools, ruled in our favor. And the, 
the Archdiocese of Boston, which had kept records of abusive priests going back to the 1920s, thinking they would never, they could never possibly be in the public eye, all of a sudden was ordered to produce all the records in the case of, of this one priest, Father Gagan, who had been shuttled through six different parishes under three cardinals and over 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 his lifetime, and with extraordinary amount of evidence that at each parish they knew what he had done to so many children. Estimates are that he probably abused more than 400, 400 children, including seven children in one extended family, and that included a four-year-old boy. Uh, we broke that story about Gagan uh, in January of 2002, and uh, we had, in order to engage our readers, we had a tip line that we posted, give us a call if you have information <coughs> about this. We got flooded with phone calls. And uh, from around the world, emails, uh, including almost 50 people from Australia who wanted to tell us their story. And the story just, uh, the story spread, spread like wildfire. We, uh, the Cardinal immediately got up, apologized, and said he had only moved this guy Gagan to another parish on the advice of two doctors. Our tip line uh, lit up when he said that, and we got calls and we were able to report one of the doctors was his general practitioner, and the other one was a psychiatrist who did not practice in this area, and who himself had been accused of sexually abusing two of his patients. And as soon as that story came out, uh, the Cardinal, I think, was in quite serious trouble. We then reported fairly quickly that, more, that the Church had made settlements involving more than 70 priests in the prior decade, which they had kept secret, and the Church did not complain. We later found out that we had seriously underreported the number. It was close to 200 priests. Um, the story, uh, as you know, uh, took off. At first it was the American Catholic Church saying what's wrong in Boston, and then all of a sudden it became a story around the country, and then it was the Vatican saying what's wrong in the liberal United States that this would go on. And now, today, we now know that it is a serious worldwide uh, problem, and uh, uh, far better than I ever could. Clay, I think, can talk to what an enormous difference the the new world we live in has made for this kind of story and others to record. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, <coughs> I actually wrote about uh, this case and the Globe's coverage of it and the, and the reactions in uh, Here Comes Everybody in a book I did on social media that came out in 2008. And I was saying uh, to Walter and Tom after, uh, after class this morning, it's interesting that, that at the time I wrote, we were in a kind of a lull. At, because it was after the, the scandal in the American church was cleared, but before it had truly become worldwide. And it's interesting to be having this conversation now when it is clear that it is, you know, it is, it is a global issue with the church. Uh, I want to talk about some features of the media landscape and sort of what it means for this moment in journalism. Uh, and I'll just pick out four things that happened in the aftermath of the, of the 2002 Spotlight story. Uh, that are the kinds of things that, even though the Globe itself had covered abusive priests earlier, Shanley, Port, Porter was Falls River, is that right? Porter. Yeah. yeah. Porter, uh, uh, Porter and Falls River, Shanley, who was in 92, uh, seemingly as monstrous as Gagan. 
that it took until 2002 for this story to become a, a synchronizing story, not just an event, but something that actually kicked off this rolling wave of concern that's now gone global. The first, uh, the first observation is that in, in April of 2002, the New York Times in its investor relations documents said this spotlight story is the largest, most global thing that's ever come out of Boston.com, the Boston Globe website. And uh, the circulation for that one story was larger than the nominal circulation of the Boston Globe because uh, when the stories in the 90s had come out, the audience for the story was Bostonians, whether Catholic or no. But in, in 2002, the audience was Catholics, whether Bostonian or no. And this ability of super distribution of someone taking the story, becoming outraged, and immediately being able to send it at low cost to multiple people who could themselves send it at low cost to multiple people meant that within days of the story coming, uh, you know, the Australians were looking on this. The, the, I mean, it went over. It went around the English language world first, and, and then and then later into other other languages. So that that ability for super distribution was was you know, the 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 first thing that made the 2002 story special. There was a group. Uh, second thing there was a group that set up a church basement uh, at the end of that January. The the January the the story came out called Voice of the Faithful. Uh, and it was a group of people whose motto was keep the faith, change the church. Uh, and it was a lay, uh, a, a protest group of loyal lay Catholics who wanted to transform the church's culture away from, from this habit of moving pedophile priests from parish to parish without telling anyone. They started with 30 people in a church basement in January. By that summer, they had 25,000 members in 21 countries. Uh, it is it is an astonishingly torrid rate of growth, and again, it, it comes now not just in terms of distributed media, but also when you distribute a piece of media, you can also now say, "Join us," right? So the internet doesn't just provide a tool for dis distribution of information; it also becomes a site of cooperation, where these organizations can found themselves and very quickly grow. Uh, it also happened to existing organizations, Survivors Network, of those abused by priests. Uh, had built up, as a, it was a U.S.-based group, they built up to nine uh, different chapter organizations in the U.S. over the course of about a dozen years, and in 2002 they grew from nine to 25. So they almost tripled in size in a single year and became in that year an international organization. And David Clussey, who, who, who founded and runs SNAP, ha has now said he believes that soon there will be more SNAP uh, uh, chapters outside the United States than inside. So it is, it is following the, uh, you know, it, it, is, it is moving to every place. Catholicism is a, is a major force. Uh, that ability for people to coordinate themselves when they hear the news, not just to be outraged in isolation, but to be outraged together, which is the kind of thing that, that produces action, uh, is new. The reaction of the authorities, relatively predictable, right? We don't know how long the Catholic Church has been doing this. We know that it is as long as anyone has been alive, which is to say this has been a permanent feature of the modern landscape. And their strategy has always been set up with the victims, cash payout, uh, 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 gag order of some sort, or agreed upon, uh, agreed upon silence. Uh, move the priests sometimes to nominal rehabilitation, sometimes just straight to another parish. Tell no one. Uh, and Voice of the Faithful, uh, in that first year, in the year 2002, consistently asked to meet with uh, John with Law, 
uh, who was then the Archbishop of the, it was the, the Ar Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Boston. And Law never met with them, but he sent uh, Bishop Eddie Bean to meet with them. Eddie Bean was essentially the sort of public, public, the media face of the, of the church at the time. And shortly after the meeting, Eddie Bean said, good Catholics may not be members of any organization that, that enables conversation across parish lines. You can talk to other Catholics, but only in the town you live in, not the next town over. Because for the first time, there was a threat that the, the, the lay Catholic population would actually have a form of organization different from the church hierarchy, and a form of organization that would prevent them from encapsulating a particular story in a particular parish. And the response to this was essentially to include lay Catholics in the hierarchical notion of the church for the first time. Uh, Vatican II, which had come out in the 60s and said, you know, the voice of people is the voice of God, provided essentially some feel-good nostrums for involvement of the laity in the church, but there wasn't any really easy way to do that, and so it didn't didn't turn into much more than a feel-good uh, uh, model. I think it is no accident that the current uh, current occupants of the Holy See and, and, and senior senior cardinals are effectively conservatives opposed ideologically to Vatican II at exactly the moment when Vatican II was acquired an actual implementation layer, which is to say there is now a way for lay Catholics to organize themselves to participate in church life. Uh, which there wasn't at the time that, that, that Vatican II was proposed. So uh, the, these tools not only allow people to network and coordinate, they allow them to do it in a way that cuts across uh, national boundaries, cuts across language boundaries, cuts across church hierarchy. Uh, and finally, and I think you know, m most tellingly for the long rolling fact of this story, the Catholic Church's uh, model has always been you know, silence, move, wait. Uh, and what they've always been able to say is, we, we are shocked as you are that a priest would do this. Uh, this is the only time this has happened. There is no history. There is no pattern. Uh, and even, even a well-funded media organization had to have a librarian on the job for several weeks just to uncover a handful of cases. Uh, what we see now, first with specific sites like bishopaccountability.org, and more latterly with with just the, the, the rise of the search engine is the normal case for uncovering information, is that the church's ability to say there is no history and there is no pattern has simply been shattered. That anyone who hears about priestly abuse anywhere in the world and types any, any related <coughs> word into any search engine will find a list as long as you're on This is what happened in Louisiana in 85, and here's what was going on in Falls River, and here's the case in Costa Rica, and here's Mexico City, and so forth. It just, it's all there all the time. Anything that has ever happened is as available uh, to, a, to an interested consumer uh, as it is today. So those kinds of changes took the, the the spotlight story and put it into a social context where not just action but persistence was possible. And this has really been the church's ace in the hole <clears throat> up until recently, which is the church has an infinite time horizon. They've simply been able to wait out anybody who wanted to bring them to heal for this kind of behavior. And the, the ability of an organization like the Globe, which also has an infinite time horizon, to 
put information out in a way that spreads worldwide and remains persistent has been phenomenal and, and, and transformative. I think this is, along with Teapot Dome and Watergate, I would, I would put this in the list of one of those world-changing investigative stories. The irony is that it is coming at a time when the very medium that enables this kind of subsequent super distribution and coordination of social, uh, social value is also destroying the economic model that the globe used to support the work in the first place, which is to say uh, the, the, the source of funding from newspapers is being destroyed by the very <laughs> medium that makes best use of the, 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 the advertising side of the house, which supported the investigative side of the house. The internet is having inverse effects on those two halves of the organization. It is wrecking the advertising side of the house, even as it makes good investigative journalism much more resonant, much more quickly to many more people on a global scale. And that, it seems to me, is the great, uh, great open question around investigative journalism now, which is, the product is more valuable in a public way, but it is less saleable in a, and it's the thing that the advertising is wrapped around, or it's the thing that fills the news hole sort of way. Uh, there are lots and lots and lots of good things that are happening on the internet. Crowdsourcing and, and, and you know, leaked databases like WikiLeaks and individual bloggers looking in in their neighborhoods and all the rest of it. But three of the things that, that strike my ear from Walter's story that are culturally at risk right now from just saying, oh, well, the Internet's just going to provide new styles of journalism as if by magic, are waste, right? The ability to put someone on the story for weeks and weeks, months at a time, and then be able to say, that didn't really pan out, right? We looked, there was nothing there. The ability to waste resources is really challenging to produce with internet journalism in its current, in its current model. Uh, institutional manipulation, right? There had to be a lawsuit against the Catholic Church. It wasn't just a matter of assembling public sources, uh, which is expensive and complicated. Uh, and, and maybe most worrying to me is the infinite time horizon. Because when you have institutions with infinite time horizons, whether the, gov the, the government or a church or what have you, Almost the only thing that can bring them to heel is other institutions that also have infinite time horizons. Uh, so as we're moving from a model of commercial advertising funding to a model of public support, whether it's uh, volunteering and donations or subsidies and endowments, I think the, the short-term question everybody's focused on is where do the dollars come from? I think those are the answers. They come from volunteering and donation and subsidies and endowments. The long-term question is, kind of culture do we need around investigative journalism to turn that source of capital into something that produces organizations that can afford to waste things, that can deal with the institutional questions of you know, suing uh, in court to get access to documents, and have the infinite time horizons necessary to have uh, a watchdog function that, that brings other institutions with infinite time horizons to heal. Uh, let me ask one question here. I would actually have directed at you, Robbie. Uh, I mentioned this morning in the in class about the Goldsmith Award, which is the Shorenstein Center's investigative <coughs> award program. And um, now in its 19th year, we've had over 100 finalists for that award, <coughs> nearly all of which have been newspapers. Um, and 
many of them have been small newspapers. I mean, certainly the New York Times and the Post and the Globe and the like have been overrepresented if you're looking at it numerically. But um, when you started this story, um, did you think of it as primarily a local story? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, it, this is a Boston it, it, story. It, it yeah, just so happens yeah. that the, the, the only the, the only uh, place where the Boston Globe and the Catholic Church were in sync is that our readership area essentially overlies the boundaries of the of the Archdiocese of Boston, which is Eastern Massachusetts. And we thought it was a local story. We thought it you know, fairly quickly. We realized it was going to be a big local story. Uh, at some point in our reporting process, it began to dawn on us that there wasn't just, as I said, something in the water in Boston that caused priests to do this to children. That it obviously uh, must have been as as, uh, as large anywhere else. I mean, what, frankly, I, uh, even though a lot of stuff is coming out in Europe now, uh, most dioceses in the United States have escaped the kind of scrutiny that occurred here, not so much because the globe was so great. I mean, we certainly put huge resources in it. We did 800 stories in one year. But because the courts sided with us in forcing the church to reveal its inner records, and in, that has not happened in most places in the United States. And there has not been sufficient accountability, even in this country. OK. Uh, we do privilege students here, but um, so if there's Floor is open for questions. Please. Well, I, I had that same impression about I'm married to someone from Italy, and uh, I remember that my Italian relatives were saying, "Oh, these you know American priests are just you know so corrupt and well, And I, I used to, but um, I, what struck me about the stories about Gagan and Porter and Shanley back then was just that a lot of the information was really old, and. The abuse happened a long time ago, and I, I remember thinking, it's really good this is getting out in the open. It's really good that people are doing something about this, but it's almost like someone had been saving it up and waiting to unleash it. Um, and again, in Europe, now I'm not up on all the revelations. I did read about some from the beginning, but it seemed like some of them were quite old. And I just wonder, how do you explain this sitting on it? It's almost as if somebody said to the Catholic <coughs> Church, either either do what I want or I'm going to unleash this all. I'll tell the story. Of, I, I, I think there's two answers to that question. One, the abuses were worse long ago. I would say the Catholic Church, even before the, the spotlight story, realized that they had a bigger problem on their hands, more systemic than they, than they knew. And they began to... Uh, they began to take steps to remove these priests rather than to... to oh, in more recent so years. So, yeah, well, in more recent years, you know, starting in the, in the 80s, they hadn't removed enough of them. In the worst cases, they still left, but the, the overall abuse seems to have, have fallen. But the other is that uh, I, do, I don't think there was anyone on the inside threatening the church. I think it's a question of synchronization which is to say, if it happened in Louisiana, but it's never happened any other place because there is no history in it, there is no pattern, and then it happens in San Diego, and there is no history, and there is no pattern, and it happens in Boston, and there is no history, and there is no pattern, uh, it, could, it could break out as many times as it needed to break out and always be covered as a local story, and no, no one would ever know any different. 
I think what changed is that the, the, the globe not only provided the template for this is how you look for it, this is what reporting on the subject looked like, but that the, uh, the spread of that story made people in Australia realize, oh yeah, we ought to be able to get this here, which is to say, I think <coughs> this is a pull story and not a push story, and I think this is a story of synchronization <coughs> of the laity of the Catholic Church themselves, not a uh, not not a small number of actors trying to unleash this information so much as a large number of actors suddenly realizing we actually are all thinking the same thing. It's like that moment where Eastern Europe collapsed and you read these stories of people realizing the jig is up, right? Each of us knows that life in the GDR is lousy, but if all of us act on that at the same time, that what was previously universally held sh private knowledge becomes public knowledge. You find the <coughs> courage to say something or make a statement. Right, right. Because you can you can deny them the ability to say this is an isolated instance. Well, what what had happened uh, just to expand on that just a wee bit is that tens of thousands of children had been sexually abused by priests, and in as far as we could tell, in the vast majority of those cases, when the abuse occurred. They did not tell anyone. They didn't tell their siblings. They didn't tell their parents. We had people calling us in, in 2002 who had been abused 25 years earlier who called us and hadn't yet told their spouses. And wanted, they wanted to tell us their story. And, and it was just, kids were sh ashamed. They didn't understand. They were 12, 13 years old. They, they, so nobody said anything. And when parents did find out and they went to the church, the pastor said, don't worry, we'll take care of it. Father needs a little time off or something. So the whole thing was hushed up, and then starting in the 90s, they started to get people coming forward, and they kept those settlements private. And then when it blew up, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to talk about it. So people, everybody, thousands of people who had suppressed this for years thought they were the only one this had ever happened to, and then all of a sudden they realized, I'm one of them. So it was so a therapeutic process. For yeah. many people, but there was, there was a downside of it, which I almost wish with the story something could be done about it, and I guess it will be corrected because there are always backlashes, but so many people had the courage to speak out because of these stories, but sometimes it became a, a you know, um, juggernaut against the Catholic Church, and there are many, you know, wonderful priests who've done wonderful things, and who even some priests back in the Gagan years who were, who were good, whose names were just in there because they were involved one way or another and suddenly they were tarnished because their names, you know, had shown up in the, in the globe and it's almost like flips from one day to the next and everybody has judged you ahead of time and, you know, people who've given their lives to service, it's, it's in a way, it's, it's a shame that you can't really pick and choose the effects of these things. Ingrid. <coughs> yes. <coughs> Hi, I'm, I'm Ingrid Lehmann, and I was a Schorenstein Fellow in 2004. I just happened to be visiting, uh, thanks to we the... We also uh, privilege former Schorenstein uh, Center Fellows when it comes to the questions. <laughs> 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 the, the ash clouds there from the volcano is the reason I'm still here. Um, <coughs> and uh, I've been uh, working, actually, since 2004 on international media scandals, and... Um, uh, I've also been teaching a course on, on that comparative media scandal. Very interesting stuff. Uh, I also happen to live in Salzburg, Austria, a place that for hundreds of years has more or less been run by the church, by the Catholic Church, of course. 
Um, the two, I, I, there are lots of questions I have, but, but the two questions I'd like to ask is, one, picking up on what Tom said about how a local story um, eventually, uh, when it becomes a global story, then gains a new momentum that, that will then threaten the secrecy policy of the uh, institution concerned, in this case the Catholic Church, but other institutions have reacted similarly or tried to. Um, what has also often happened is that um, there are whistleblowers from within the organization. I don't mean the victims, I mean the organization itself that then come out and say, this has been our policy, and then you know you really go to the leadership of the organization. Has that happened? I haven't seen that reported. Uh, my, my other uh, question is, of course, the, the interesting one in the, in the long run, is this something that you personally, from just based on your research, think is not only big enough, but is going to continue long enough to put real pressure on the Vatican and the Pope himself to whatever? What's your view on that? Well, to your last question, I have no hope that the Vatican itself will ever, ever. change in the, in the sense that I think your question suggested that, that, that this is not an institution that even now, based upon the way it's handled the most recent stuff, feels that it owes any accountability to the church. That's my own personal and I don't, uh, I, I don't see that changing now. The, the, the consequence for the church may be that uh, it diminishes yet again as an institution in other countries. I, I, yeah, that, and, and to this earlier juggernaut question, or juggernaut observation as well, uh, I think it's almost impossible to tell this story in which the Catholic Church is beleaguered. They've had enormous support from the authorities in covering up these cases, uh, in hiding these cases. They, they came this close to being charged uh, under RICO, Racketeering and Corrupt uh, Organization, in Boston because of the persistent pattern of uh, abuse and cover-up of these children. And weren't only because the Boston DA could not imagine charging the Catholic Church as a corrupt organization even though they fit the entire pattern the law was on. So I don't, I, you know, the, the, the amount of, the amount of official support, particularly in European and, and Latin America, the amount of, of legal support for keeping the church from being, being held to account is quite, uh, is quite extraordinary. And they face what Hirschman would call an exit voice and loyalty choice right now, right? They can, try to have faithful members of the laity who want the church to be brought, to be made more accountable. They can try to modify themselves to keep those members in the fold, or they can shrink uh, to, loyal, to, to members who are relative loyalists without regard to the crimes committed by, committed by priests, uh, and expel uh, the people who would like to see the church updated. The, the last time they came to a historical uh, juncture of this magnitude, the Protestant Reformation, they made that latter choice. Uh, and I don't see any reason to think that they wouldn't make it again, which is to say I imagine that they will happily shrink, uh, shrinks their size in or wherever necessary to expel reformers. 
uh, and be a be an organization more organized around a smaller number of loyalists rather than uh, creating any degree of accountability to you know, rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's in, in their participation in, in the legal systems of the countries where they operate. And financially, aren't they going to... You know, when people in Austria are leaving now in the droves and they're not but paying the taxes. But that's the exit. That's the exit voice and loyalty choice, which is uh -huh. they would rather be a smaller organization with more privilege for the priests, rather than a larger organization with less privilege. For the, priests. The, the strength and the growth of the Catholic Church has been in parts of the world, Africa and Latin America, where this scandal has had so far virtually or very little impact. But America's really coming. Africa, maybe not. Africa, Africa, they've been later, and they may have moved into Africa at a time that they were willing to rein in pedophile priests earlier. There's also been accommodation around married priests in Africa that haven't been haven't existed in the rest of the world. The Latin American scandal is, I think, that's the next that's the next one to go because it, the priests there have been presumptively as abusive as elsewhere because they have the same historical pattern. Um, it's just that press is even less willing than, say, the Italian or Spanish press to report it, but that won't last forever. Walter, I, I, I was curious, what kind of pressure was brought that you know of on the globe to, to basically not do this story? And how would that differ 10 or 15 years earlier when the church may have been a more dominant institution? and if one fast forwards to the present day in, in, in sort of the, where the internet is even more powerful, if you're trying to suppress a story like, is it possible to suppress a story like this, or what's the effective strategy now if you're trying to keep something from, from going out? I mean, I mean, I'm imagining here that there was a fair amount of pressure brought on the globe to not do what you were doing. Um, I, I'll leave the last question to my colleague here, but I would I would say to you I know of no pressure on the globe to prevent us or deter us from doing the story. Now, uh, I imagine that the publisher must have received some before the story broke. Must have because the cardinal found out about three weeks after we started asking questions that we were asking questions about priests other than Gagan, and he, he sent an emissary to me. And I said, you know, if we have any questions to ask later on, we'll call you. See you later. Now, but the publisher's job is to deflect that sort of outside pressure to the extent it existed. Uh, and, I, and if it was there, he did so. And he did so in a way, the proper way, so that I wouldn't even know about it. I mean, that's like saying, I don't know, I suspect, but I was insulated from it, and that's the way it's supposed to work. And I think that's great. Now, 10 or 15 years earlier, the Globe was after Father Porter in 92, and we got a lot of pressure. Cardinal Law, as you remember, came out with his pronouncement calling down the power of God on the media, and especially the Boston Globe. What isn't generally known is a week after he said that, Jack Driscoll, our Irish Catholic editor, fell and broke his leg. <laughs> uh, but, but that was back in a time, and I have to say this, uh, where all of us who were acculturated, and I'm a product of Boston Catholic schools and a Jesuit high school, all of us who were acculturated to this institution and its 
iconic status in our community probably averted our eyes or looked the other way. Certainly police and prosecutors did for a long time, and some judges. And I, there are stories, I'll just relate one very quickly. In 1984, Father Eugene O'Sullivan in Arlington pled guilty to the forcible anal rape of a 12-year-old altar boy in Middlesex Superior Court, and he got six months in the House of Correction, or was it six months probation? Whatever it was, it's some. It's astonishingly, and and card and and Archbishop Law sent him to a diocese in New Jersey, and he was in five parishes in seven years, and four of the parishes they never knew about his rape conviction, and the Globe wrote that story in 1993, and and I look back on it in 2002, and I didn't remember it. But when I look back on it, I said, how could we not read that story, which, was, by the way, was on the front page in 1993, and not have a meeting and say, wait a minute, isn't there something worth looking into there? And we didn't do it. So if you want to bury a story, to take the second half of the question, if you want to bury a story now, there's been a curious inversion of the news cycle. Uh, it used to be that front page news was bad for you because that would indicate some synchronization of the public. But with the news cycle now down at 36 hours, if you want to bury a story, get it all out at once, right away. Everything, everything on one day. And then the next day say, that's yesterday's news. The thing that kills people now is drip, drip. Goldman, Goldman is up against it right now because they can't release the email documents. So they're going to have to wait for the subpoena process and the discovery process. And Goldman is going to be on the front page day after day after day. The result of that, I don't know. But it would have been better for Goldman to have said, we're going to do this to ourselves so that we can actually compress the news cycle rather than expand. And I think a number of organizations haven't yet realized that if I can get complete front page news coverage, but reduce the possibility that, in fact, the story is going to be like this. Because the, the, uh, the ability to create a long cycle of attention to a story, which used to come from the dailiness of the daily newspaper, uh, there is now no media outlet alone that can decide whether or not a story is going to unfold over a long period of time. So the way you front load that in your favor is you take advantage <coughs> of the news cycle, particularly in the, in the market-driven parts of the, parts of the industry. You just get it all out at once. And then you say, yeah, it was last week. Are you still talking about that, that priest thing? Like we told you everything we know. It's really when it becomes a story every day and there's a new revelation. The Acorn people, they were the the people who took Acorn down. Uh, they released a video. They, did, they didn't release everything they had. They released a video and Acorn said, well, this is awful. You know, of course we object to this. We, we you know, fired that person at once. Nothing like this would ever happen in another office. Next day, another video. And it was on day four when they realized they have a potentially unlimited number of things they can say about Acorn that the dam broke. So if they released everything about Acorn, Acorn could have said, it's terrible, terrible, we're taking steps, and be done. So if you ever get into that kind of trouble, right, it's, it's the, you know, the, 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 the post-Chapaquitic advice, but now even more, uh, even more forcefully, the sooner and in more detail you can announce the bad news, the better. Um, this may be two separate issues, but you were saying how 
the internet, ironically, is ruining the financial model for newspapers. Um, one of the finalists for the Goldsmith Awards this year was ProPublica, mm -hmm. who worked in collaboration with... Doesn't. Now, can more of that collaboration somehow help? Sure. Sure. I mean, I. I do you see a lot more of that happening? Absolutely. I think. I think that what Steiger is up to, and it's interesting. Steiger. Steiger said we're going to take what I know from the journal. We're going to move in the nonprofit world. So I'm going to get an infinite time horizon, not by an infinite future stream of, of ad revenues, but by having an endowment, the way this institution has an infinite time horizon. Uh, and about six, eight months in, they realized, oh, we're missing some stuff that's possible. And they picked Amanda Mickle out of Huffington Post, who'd done the off-the-bus stuff, who'd done the crowdsourcing stuff. I think that that kind of hybridization is where we're going. We've, we've had a story we tell about newspapers, which is, right, uh, Best Buy is happy to fund the Baghdad Bureau, and that's just that. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. This is how news works. And then all of a sudden, Best Buy could opt out of funding the Baghdad Bureau. And Everything that looked like an edge case in American journalism, where a, where a for-profit institution, except yeah, there's NPR and there's the BBC, whatever, they don't really count. All of a sudden, that stuff counts a lot. So ProPublica is doing amazing work, in my mind, much more amazing work as a wholesaler of news than as a retailer, which is to say by providing databases. And interestingly, they're in the same business as, as Sunlight Labs. They're providing data on government. But ProPublica goes the extra step and says, Here's how to think about that. <coughs> and by providing both the database and some view for the reporters, they're doing amazing work in helping people who have a native audience bridge the gap for a story. And that, that collaborative model, which kind of can't exist unless there's nonprofit wholesalers, is one of, I think, the big bright lights of American journalism and, and presumably at some point global journalism today. On the more local level, uh, there are a number of uh, nonprofit enterprises around the country that are doing investigative journalism. Uh, uh, my program at Northeastern, I, I teach investigative journalism to students who write stories for the Globe. And we've had 15 page one hits in three years, and it, it supplements, I mean, it gives the Globe investigative stuff that it no longer has the resources to do. The Globe still has its spotlight team and other people doing investigative reporting. There's a program at Boston University, the New England Center for Investigative Reporting. Uh, there's a reporter at the Chicago Tribune who does investigative reporting who has a co class he teaches at Columbia College in Chicago, which recently did a story uh, that uh, reopened the investigation of someone who is on death row, who had been convicted for uh, convicted of murder. So there are more, more and more of these efforts bringing up around the country. So that's a good thing. Please. Hi, my name is Monica Campbell. I'm a fellow, and I've been reporting from Mexico, where we've had several scandals. In fact, NPR today reported on uh, Marcel Marcel, who was the religion of Christ, who passed away not too long ago. Huge story in Mexico, which actually was really difficult to report on for local reporters because of threats they received. So I'm wondering, just to take a little bit further your question about collaboration, on a global scale, I mean, considering the shared interests globally, um, Clay, do you think that there's a, a time in the not-so-distant future when we see programs like places like ProPublica actually find counterparts in Mexico, Italy, these types of places, and maybe be able to cross the language barrier 
I think and, 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 and crowdsource what's happening in Mexico and also allow these untold stories in a place like Mexico be told uh, more freely. Uh, so I think I think absolutely my experience or or from observation, this is another place where pull is working better than push, which is to say I doubt given the number of stories that you know the folks the folks with Stagger, the folks with ProPublica feel like they're they're not covering on any given day, that they're also gonna be pushing to global. But I do know that, you know, the story of SNAP as Survivors Network of those abused by priests and voice of the faithful they became international organizations without ever meaning to because people in other countries, I think Mexico City, in fact, may have been the first SNAP chapter outside the United States because they saw it and they said, we want that. Mm -hmm. So here's the, the story that I think <coughs> is going to be the likeliest next source. The, uh, there's a pair of stories. One, the WikiLeaks story, obviously. Mm -hmm. The ability to use the anonymizing redirect of WikiLeaks to get material out to get it back. It actually turns out to be easier to publish it globally and draw it back into a local context <coughs> than to try to do it entirely locally. And the other is Yushahidi, which is this Kenyan site that was set up by oh, Ori, who was here, Ori Akola, uh, the Kenyan blogger, um, uh, to report on violence after the election in the, the December 2007 uh, Kenyan presidential election. Uh, that software was not only invented in an African context, it's been ported to, it's been translated in several languages, it's been used all over uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, it's been used in Mexico to track vote, uh, you know, track uh, uh, free and fair elections, it's been used in Haiti and Chile to, to track earthquake, uh, earthquake victims and supplies and so forth. And the ability, I think, I've got a, a student actually who's working on uh, trying an anonymous crowdsourcing site based in part on Yushahidi to surface reports of corrupt police, where no one report becomes the thing you trust, but when you start to see patterns of otherwise uh, dissociated individuals, it's extremely difficult to do because Telmex is so closely aligned with the, the, uh, the telecom companies that you, you may simply not be able to send safely send a message in any electronic format about the police without getting a knock on your door. But there are people there are people trying. So I, I, I do think that this is going to spread, but I think I think that it's going to spread by people recognizing the pattern of ProPublica or recognizing the pattern of Yushahidi and reconstructing it for themselves. Which suggests to me that the platform like tools which allow people to build these kinds of reporting structures in their local con context will matter more than, please, ProPublica, won't you open a Mexico City office, which strikes me as unlikely for all kinds of reasons, but rather, please, please ProPublica, won't you give us a list of things you've done to get where you're going so that if we see that template, we can, we can implement it for ourselves. That's how Yushahidi spread it. My guess is that these kinds of nonprofit reporting functions are going to spread in, 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 in a similar way. Oh, yeah. Um, a number of law schools operating clinical law programs around the country are coming under increased mm -hmm. attack by corporate interests to prevent the law schools from doing this, and they generally represent uh, indigent uh, poor people. Is the same thing happening with um, uh, journalism students at uh, schools of uh, journalism and where you're engaged in uh, investigative reporting by students? and has there been a number of slap suits, or do you expect that? No, there, there's been none of that. Uh, you know, one thing we try to do is we don't use anonymous sources, and we rely almost always on public 
documents for our reporting to try and avoid anything like that. But no, there's been no no pressure of that sort, and I, I don't think in, in an academic setting it would be tolerated. This this business of public documents too is so important. I mean, this is what Izzy Stone did, right? He famously said, "I don't. I, not only do I not, you know, give off-the-record interviews. I don't even really talk to those people because I don't care what they say to me. They're trying to spin me. I look at the I look at the documents." Um, <coughs> The amount of documentation that's being built up on all aspects of public life of various officials, coupled with extraordinary mathematical techniques for detecting things like fraud and abuse, uh, where the database does the work that 10 reporters could not have done, uh, that is, I think, A, going to be a huge source of investigative reporting. But B, when Walter was telling the story this morning in class about this and, and whether the Catholics were going to rain down you know, rain stones down on the globe when they reported this. He said, because we had documentation, it wasn't just we're reporting this, someone said this, it's here are the court records now unsealed. The documents attacking people who have, who are working from documentation turns out to be harder than attacking people who are working from sources and particularly anonymous sources. And I think a lot of the legal clinic work is gonna, gonna move to either include or some legal clinics will be based on this kind of analysis of public sources as opposed to the sort of typical shoe leather phone call uh, model, which will provide further, I think, further insulation from, from, from institutional interference. I think you've been trying to get in for a while, please. Uh, I've been, I'm sort of juggling back and forth between sort of your example of, you know, Breitbart trickling out the acorn dirt over time mm -hmm. and that being really successful. I'm just wondering if Say, setting aside questions of, you know, could a small outlet do, do what the Globe did, even if they could, was there something about the story coming from an institution with a long history within the community of, of trust? I mean, if you're taking on the church, you, you're going to need a certain level of trust with the community, I would think. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine, you know, is can you replicate that online? Even even setting aside the other questions of you know resources and well, wasting the, time and all the, that, like, no, you there's not a question of replicating it online because the globe did it online. The question isn't online or not. The the, the right. So I should so. You mean can you I, can you do it with a, a, a novel small, small right, organization small online? Organization. I doubt it. Small organizations don't generally have the resources. In fact, a lot of papers the size of the globe now do not have any investigative reporters on. So, I guess my question, though, is, I mean, if you, if you were a small unit and you spent time and you uncovered a story, you know, with the way things spread online, I, I, it seems to me that you still need that pick, uh, pick up from larger organizations, larger news outlets. You don't need pick up. It depends on the story, right? If you've seen some kittens on a treadmill, you are golden. You right. don't need a big organization. Right. It will but spread, right? I mean, the, you, look at, you look at the front page of YouTube now, right? I mean, you know, Charlie Bit My Finger has a larger audience than any three American television shows you could name. So some kinds of things spread, other kinds of things don't spread. What I think you're picking up on is if the initial source doesn't provide some degree of credibility, and in particular, if the initial source instead looks like they have an axe to grind, it will circulate only among other people who, who have that same axe right. to grind. And it will produce no surprises for that reason. Mm -hmm. um, Alex, when we talked about this last fall, Alex said that the Gagan story had been reported by a, a Boston Weekly paper, one of the alternative weekly papers, the previous fall. 
But well, that presumably circulated among the godless communists of, of Bridal Square or what have you, and 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 did not did not spread because it didn't it didn't come from a place where you think, oh my goodness, you know, a criticism of the Catholic Church, and it didn't come from a place uh, where the audience whose hands it fell into were outraged on their own behalf and forwarded. Well, in in, in that in that case, uh, the Gagan story had been reported by the Globe and. The Herald and the Phoenix. Which the Phoenix is the one referring, referring to. That's right. But what what the Phoenix did was they interviewed victims who were part of this lawsuit who who said, "Well, this must surely the church must have known what was going on here," but they didn't. They didn't get the documents. Or they, they raised the question. Right. The question was, "How do you get the answer?" And uh, the answer was in the documents. Last quick question because we're at the bewitching hour. Equally quick. It's not the, it's not the quickness of the question that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> me and Walter, the quickness of me and Walter's answer. Um, uh, okay, uh, two part, very quick question. Uh, one is, do you think that the church, if it was more savvy during the time with the use of social media, could have constructed, despite the fact that they seemed to take a wrong turn any time they made a public response, could have constructed a good defense, even an offense, if they'd been better at using the media. And Walter, just on the issue of, um, of uh, kind of uh, uh, whether or not you, there was any pressure for the newspaper, for, uh, on the newspaper, for you, uh, I wonder as well, being in the community, because I can't imagine what it was like, no matter how much documentation you had. I'm a child of St. Patrick's and Stoneham. Father Shanley was one of my favorite priests growing up, mm -hmm. because little, you know, little did any of us know, but he did amazing things. Uh, and, and it hurt people who were nowhere near Father Shanley. I mean, as you know, who were not victims at all. So, that's it. To the first part of the question, I would say, uh, similar to the answer, I think the only thing the church could have done was to say, we have silenced, isolated, contained, and waited as our strategy from, we don't even know how long. But that strategy always worked. Uh, and in fact, Law's behavior in 2002 seemed to suggest, because he was getting a do-over of the, uh, the Porter case from, from 92, he seemed to believe that that same strategy was going to work. It would have taken, I think, a, a genius to have said, the, these 10 years are when our decades-long strategy is broken. But if the church had had that genius, and they had been high enough, the church should have said was, house cleaning, uh, we are suddenly demonizing pedophile priests. We are going to publicly excoriate them, defrock them, kick them out. And we are going to do this in country after country all at the same time. Uh, because if we don't do it, it's going to happen to us anyway. I don't believe, I mean, even the people reporting the story thought it was a local story, which say, I don't believe that that would be a, would ever have been a practical possibility in an institution as inherently conservative about media dealings as they were. But that would have been, I think, the only thing to do it, which is essentially to say, we're going to do it to ourselves in order to contain the idea that we should be brought into civil accountability in the countries where we operate. Um, but that's, I mean, I can imagine a world like that, but only in the same sense that I can imagine a world where everybody gets a pony. Like, I can picture it, but I don't think that there's any practical way that it could have actually, uh, could have actually happened. To, you get the last word. to your second question, the answer, if I remember the question correctly, was yes. You felt pressured. Did I get a fair amount of heat from people I knew? Sure. Did it abate fairly quickly? Yeah. Once people began to pay attention to the documents and they realized it wasn't the message or it was the message. 
Clay, Robbie, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.